Good morning. Just before Nick comes to speak to us, um, I'm going to bring today's reading, which comes from Psalm 40. If you've got a pew Bible, it's on page 566. If you haven't, it's just after Psalm 39. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and, and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. May all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, the Lord be exalted. Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my helper and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. Good morning. Thank you so much for the welcome. It is a real joy to be here with you. Just need to grab this gadget. Have you ever been stuck somewhere? When I was really little, um, I used to enjoy riding in the car, sitting with my hands on the front two seats, with the gap between the seats in, uh, in front of me. This predates rear seat belts and all of that. Don't do it now. Um, and uh, for some reason, one day, as we were driving along, I decided to push my head down between the seats. And then, for some reason, I turned my head like that, 
and it was completely stuck. There was nothing I could do to get it out. In the end, my parents had to stop the car, pull over to the side of the road, and then ever so gently trying to lever me back round. And I... It's kind of remained with me through my life, scarred <laughs> by this experience. At the end of June this year, the world was gripped by the news that a Thai boys football team were trapped in a cave complex with their coach, cut off by rising water levels. And we globally held our collective breath as we waited for news. Were they alive? And then overjoyed when we heard that two British divers had found them alive and well. Can you imagine being one of those boys and all of a sudden these divers' heads poke up? How must that have felt? They weren't alone. People were looking for them. Amazing. But, of course, that wasn't the end of it because they couldn't just come out with the divers because none of them could swim, and uh, the water levels were still up and down. So plans had to be put in place for each of the boys to be taken out one by one with a couple of divers with them carrying oxygen tanks and, and all the rest of it, and they had to be taught what to do. In the end, it was 17 days after they'd been lost that the last of them was rescued. It was astonishing. Can you imagine how it felt waiting, knowing that the rescue was being planned and you're still stuck in the cave? Or what about those who were still in the cave when their friends had been taken out, waiting for their turn? How sweet must the fresh air have tasted in their nostrils as they finally stepped out of that cave? Well, today we're looking at a psalm that was written by David who felt as if he was stuck, not with his head between some seats or not even in a cave, but in a stinking pit. But like the football team, he had to wait patiently for his rescue and trust that he would be rescued. And then afterwards he talks about how his feet were on firm ground once again. One of the things, as I reflect on this psalm, that I'm reminded of is that bad stuff happens to us all. Did you notice, as Tom read the psalm to us, it begins with David in something of a predicament, and it ends with David in something of a predicament. At the start, he's in this slimy pit, and at the end, he's in the firing line, if you like. People were out to get him. I sometimes come across Christians who seem to believe that bad things just should not ever happen to them. They may not say so directly, but you can tell it from the way they pray. Proclaiming prosperity and protection as if it's a right. I think we should all read Psalm 40 if we feel like that. Because if ever there was somebody who could expect an easy life of it, it was David. God describes David, this is God describing David as a man after my own heart. He'd been chosen as Israel's king when he was still a young lad, and when he was king, Israel was bigger and more powerful and more prosperous than at any time in their history. But David wrote that he felt like he'd been stuck in a slimy pit. And then later on, even as he's writing this psalm, he writes as people are trying to take his life, undermine him, 
or are gossiping about him to discredit him. There's no proclaiming protection and prosperity here. This is real life. And real life can be unpleasant. And I've had a recent experience of that this year. About a year ago, I was diagnosed with a heart condition that we were told, if untreated, would have killed me. And in February, I had open heart surgery and then spent over three weeks in hospital. And since then, my recovery has been kind of bumpy along the way. And I'm delighted to say I really do feel an awful lot better now. But there were times when it kind of felt like I was stuck. Would I ever get out of hospital? I couldn't escape from the pit. Now, I don't know what your circumstances are today. Maybe you're struggling with health or someone you love is struggling with ill health. Maybe you're struggling with some form of addiction or or just loneliness. Maybe debt or money worries are a problem for you. You might be identifying very closely with how David describes life in Psalm 40. Of course, you may be in a really happy place and experiencing joy and all that life can give you that you feel is wonderful. But there's no guarantee that life will always be like that. And even if life is a bed of roses, remember that roses have thorns. At some point, I think we will all find ourselves in Psalm 40. David says right at the very start that he was stuck in a pit. I think it's unlikely that it's a physical pit. There's nowhere else described in Scripture of David being stuck in a pit. But that's how he felt. Trapped, unable to help himself. Really unpleasant circumstances. He uses some really descriptive words to describe his experience. Slimy, muddy, miry pit. Now, the language in our Bibles is somewhat sanitized, Um, But let's just say that it was a a really stinking pit, uh, a disgusting place. It could have been a cesspit, even, in in the language that's used. We don't know exactly what it represented for David. There's suggestions from a kind of national crisis right through to personal illness. And I think it's more likely to have been personal because the language he uses is all me and I. It's all about him. It's possible that David even felt like he was at death's door because the language of pit in a Hebrew uh, context was used to describe the grave. And that's how the psalm begins. And as if that wasn't bad enough, at the end of the psalm, David is in the firing line. To be in the firing line is to be right at the front of the army. You're facing the enemy. It's like General John Sedgwick in the American Civil War. He stood up on the firing line, and his other soldiers urged him to take cover, and his famous immortal last words, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dis... (laughs) The firing line is a very dangerous place to be. There's a real contrast in this psalm. Up until verse 10, 
everything is hunky-dory and lovely and wonderful. God had saved David from this stinky pit. He'd set his feet on the rock, and then David eulogizes about how amazing God is. Right through to verse 10, which concludes, I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. And it's kind of building to this wonderful crescendo of praise. And then suddenly there's a loud discord and a dun-dun-dun. And the tone changes completely into verse 11. From verse 11, we read phrases like this. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord, for troubles without number surround me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. There's been a dramatic plot twist. As if the slimy pit had been bad enough, this, if anything, was worse for David. And he says exactly what's going on this time. Some people were actually out to kill him. Others wanted to ruin him, and still others were spreading untrue rumors to discredit him. And in these extreme circumstances, David turned to God for his help. Right at the start of the psalm, it begins, I waited patiently for the Lord. And at the end, right at the very end, he's calling out to God once again. You are my help, my deliverer. You're my God. Do not delay. And that's the same for us, isn't it? When we find ourselves struggling or in difficulty, the first thing we do is we get on our knees and we pray and we ask for God's help. Or, if we're honest, the first thing we do is try and sort it out ourselves or get somebody else to help us. And then we think, oh, I ought to be praying about this. Now, don't misunderstand me. Yes, we may well be involved in being part of the solution to whatever the problem is, and we may have to involve other people. I had to use doctors and nurses and physiotherapists to help restore my health, and I've had to exercise and eat well to complement that. I'm not saying we shouldn't look for help from elsewhere, but where's our first place to look? to look to God, to call out to him. I mean, he's God. There's nobody else more capable to help us. And at the time of writing this psalm, David reflected back on that time when God had helped him when he'd been in that slimy pit and transformed his circumstances from a claggy quagmire to standing on solid ground. So he writes this song of praise about how amazing God is. We'll come back to that a little bit later on. But right at the start, he describes waiting patiently for God to act while he's in this slimy pit. The language used suggests he'd actually been waiting for quite a long time. His circumstances didn't improve the moment he prayed. At the end of the psalm, David was still enduring threats and he's crying out to God again. And again, it's not an instant response that he's expecting. But we live in an instant society, don't we? We've got microwave meals, super fast broadband, next day delivery, instant credit. And I wonder whether these things have started to condition us as Christians so that we get impatient with God when things don't happen right away, when we want. 
I can remember being told in Sunday school that there are three different ways in which God answers our prayers when we ask him for something. Yes, no, and wait. Now, that's a little naive, a little simplistic, but it's not far from the truth. And God certainly sometimes tells us to wait. We may not understand, we may not like our circumstances. I'm sure David didn't like being in that pit, whatever it represented. We may wonder whether anything is going to change. But sometimes God says, I want you to wait. But it's not like waiting for a bus. You just stand there, kind of hoping one will come along, and then eventually one does along with two others. The phrase waited patiently can be translated as expected expectantly or looked lookingly, if that's a word. It's got that sense of persevering in tough circumstances because God is faithful and we are actively anticipating his response. Any minute now, God, you're going to do this. I know that. I trust that. I believe that. But in the meantime, I'll wait. In our difficult times, the best thing that we can do is to wait expectantly, patiently for God, praying in faith that he will act in his time and in his way. And perhaps asking for God's help for us to be patient. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? Patience. And I find, I don't know if you find this, but often as I persevere in prayer, what happens is that God changes me. Sometimes he even starts to change the way that I'm asking for things and the things I'm asking for. Because prayer is as much about changing us as it is about asking God to act. Have you ever had the experience of talking to somebody and you know that they're not listening to you? They're somewhere else. And you carry on talking and then halfway through the conversation, you ask them something and it's, oh, sorry, oh, I'm, uh, and kind of embarrassed, they have to admit, sorry, I wasn't paying attention. In the pit, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. Our English language suggests that actually God wasn't paying attention. David had been in the pit crying out and eventually Oh, oh, David, you're down there, are you? Okay, um, let's help you out then. That's not what was going on. What was going on, again, our English language really is inadequate here. The, the language in Hebrew doesn't describe someone not paying attention and then suddenly, oh, oh. It's more like he bent down to me and listened to my crying. And the image is of a loving parent who crouches down next to a crying child and just is there to comfort them. Whatever David's pit was, God wasn't miles away waiting to be summoned. He was right there. God hears all of our prayers. He's not a long way off listening to them on an answering machine He's present with us. He's actively interested. He's engaged with us wherever we are while we are waiting for whatever his deliverance might be. 
And there are times when actually that deliverance isn't going to come this side of our own physical death, but will come as we are translated into glory. But God crouches down with us, and he listens to our cry. His presence by his spirit reassures us in those circumstances. I remember listening to the amazing testimony of a mother whose son had been killed in a car accident. And someone had asked her, where was God when your son was killed? And she replied, he was right there in the car with him, feeling the impact. That's what David was talking about. Even if we can't sense God is there, the testimony of scripture, the testimony of believers through the centuries is, yes, God is there with us, crouching down as we cry. And my testimony in recent months is that I know God has been with me and I've really been aware during, well, before, during and after the surgery of God's peace. So aware that many, many people have been praying for me and thank you to you for your prayers. I really, really appreciate them. And I think part of the answer to those prayers has been this incredible sense of peace that I've experienced at every step of the journey. It didn't mean that things didn't go wrong. I'll tell you a bit more about that later on. But I always had that sense of peace. The Bible describes it as peace that passes all human understanding. I've started calling it peace that makes no sense in the circumstances. Because despite all that I was going through, I just felt that incredible sense of God's peace. And I think that's what David experienced too. So, what if your life is the pits, or you feel like you're in the firing line? What should you do? Well, in Psalm 40, David shares with us some of the ways he responded to those circumstances. And it comes from his heart. The first thing he did was give God the credit. A lot of this psalm is about David saying, isn't God amazing? Hasn't he done amazing things? Isn't he faithful? Look at all he's done for me. And it's really important that we do that too, recognizing that God is the source of so much blessing in our life. David says in verse 6, Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. That's not a cop-out, because he then does start trying to, to tell people what those deeds are. He talks about God lifting him out of the pit. He remembers the wonderful things God has done. Maybe he's just even looking around at the people around him and going, Wow, God, you've given me all these people to help me. He remembers just how much God has done for him, talking of God saving him, how God had changed his heart. In my praying, I sometimes fall into the bad habit of starting with praise and thanks, but actually what I'm really doing is rushing to the important bits where I'm asking God for the stuff that's on my heart, the stuff that really matters to me. But let's not rush past the praise. There's a really important purpose in us praising God. And it's not for God's ego. It's not that God feels like he needs a boost. I mean, my little prayer is not really going to make God feel, woohoo. It's actually, I think, more for me. It's a reminder for me of how amazing God is, how great he is, how faithful he is. 
And as we do that, God's Spirit bolsters our faith. It's one of the blessings we receive as we worship God. We're singing songs to God and worshipping him, and yes, he's worth it all and so much more, but it also lifts us, doesn't it? When David remembered that God had lifted him out of the pit, it gave him the confidence to trust God in the firing line. So I want to give you some homework. Okay. How about when you get home or sometime in the next week, um, you get a piece of paper, not a little scrap, but a decent-sized one, and start writing down all of the things God has done for you. There's an old hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. So let's try it. Write down all of the things God has done for you. And as you do, thank him for them. Take your time. You might think it's easier to do it with a friend, that's fine. You can do it together or, or maybe in a small group, in a house group, whatever. Work together, share what God has done for you. David seems to have done that and turned it into Psalm 40. The new song that God gave him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, once you've written your list, I'd really encourage you to fold it up and take it with you during the rest of the week. Keep it visible. Because each time you look at it, it's a reminder that God has blessed you so much. And allow God's spirit to, to boost your faith just by the knowledge of all that he has done for you. Did you notice what David wrote in verse 6? Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced or opened. And then he carries on. Burns offerings and sin offerings you did not require. And this is, remember, going to be sung in collective worship and I can imagine all of the priests and the Levites going, uh, excuse me, David, hold on, hold on. What do you mean God doesn't want the sacrifices? We've worked really hard on these. And the law is full of information about how we're supposed to offer our sacrifices. And you're telling us that all of that is rubbish? I think the answering is, answer is in the ear-piercing or opening. Um, because, again, our language just doesn't do justice to it. Literally, that you have opened my ears is you have dug me some ears. You've really given me an opportunity to hear well. Because in Hebrew tradition, the place of spiritual perception, the place where you understood where or what God was saying to you is your ears. That's why Jesus says, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Understand what I'm saying. And David was saying that God had helped him to understand what he wants. And in verse 8, he writes it, I desire to do your will, my God, your law is within my heart. David understood that what God is really after is people who want to do his will. People whose hearts are aligned with him. The mere act of making an offering or a sacrifice on its own, meant absolutely nothing. If it wasn't actually coming from somebody saying, I'm worshipping you, God, by doing this offering or making this sacrifice. If they were just done as rituals on their own, they really didn't mean anything. That's what David is saying here. They should be an expression of love and devotion and worship. 
Now, the closest thing we have today, we don't do animal sacrifices here. Don't, do we, Ian? No. But the closest thing we have is the offering. When the bags come round, do we consciously think, this is an act of worship. God, I want you to know how great you are when I place this in the bag. Or do we just, oh, it's the offering time, right? I've always done it that way. Or maybe, ooh, better put something in because somebody's watching me. Now, I'm not sure what your treasurer would say to me afterwards about this, but I'm going to try anyway. I think God would rather you didn't put anything in the bag than put it in simply out of habit. When we worship, however it is with our lips, with our money, we do so from the heart. We offer our worship to God. When David says you don't want sacrifices and ritual, he's not actually saying don't do them. He's saying what you're first after is my heart. And he knew that human nature is such that we really prefer to do things out of habit. It's a lot easier. We drive mostly out of habit. Most of the time, we're not consciously thinking, right, drive, um, accelerate it down, brake. We, we do it automatically. It's almost human nature to do things like that. And the sacrifices and the offerings or our offering today can become something along those lines. It becomes a ritual, something we do just because we do it. But God doesn't want ritual. He wants relationship. God has never given us religion by numbers. And David understood that. And for us as Christians, following Jesus isn't actually about following rules. It's not about doing this and this and this. It's about saying, God, change my heart. I'm sorry for the way I've lived. I want you to come and be my Lord. It's a change of attitude from our selfish attitude to wanting what God wants beyond everything else. Tell it as it is as well. Because there's, there's really no point in pretending with God, is there? Because he knows us completely. The second half of this psalm, David is really brutally honest, isn't he? He's telling God how he's feeling. He is feeling completely overwhelmed. He talks about his troubles being more than the hairs of his head. I don't think he was like me. I think he meant there was a lot of trouble. He spoke of his heart failing. And again, I don't think he was thinking of physical heart failure. Um, we sometimes say that someone has lost heart, don't we? And it's just, my courage is at its end. Jesus encourages us to be really honest in our praying with God. And maybe together we can covenant to commit to one another to say, when we pray, we're going to be honest. We're not going to put up a front. We're not going to use fancy words. We're not going to try and dress everything up. We're just going to say how it is. God, life sucks at the moment, or whatever it is. And perhaps in our honesty, we can release others to know that they can be honest with God too. Tell God as it is, because he knows anyway. And then tell others what God has done. Remember, this psalm was written to be sung out loud, even though it's a very personal song. It was intended for public worship. 
And yes, within the song is this section about how amazing God is. And twice David mentions where it's going to be sung. In the great assembly, massive national gatherings, when everyone came to Jerusalem for these big festivals they used to have. Now, bearing in mind that David's got something of a captive audience at these big festivals, and that he's under attack from all these different people, you'd have thought that he might take the opportunity to have a bit of, oh, and by the way, isn't David a lovely bloke? in this psalm. Just a little bit of self-promotion. But he doesn't do that. He just sees the opportunity to tell people how amazing God has been. I think one of the greatest unmiracles within the Christian community is that somehow we lose our desire to tell people about Jesus. Maybe it's because as we get older in our faith, the remarkable nature of what God has done in Jesus just becomes familiar. It loses some of the dramatic power it had early on in our faith. It becomes normal, and we forget to tell people about it. Or maybe we're concerned about what other people might think about us, Will they think we're some sort of religious nutcase? Will they think we've lost our mind if we start telling them that God spoke to me? Yeah, of course, we've got to be sensible and sensitive in how we share our faith with other people. But being sensitive and sensible shouldn't be an excuse for keeping quiet completely. Is what other people think about you more important than telling them what God has done for you? Or maybe we've privatized salvation. It's all about what God has done for me. And we forget he's done it for everyone. And because he's done it for everyone, everyone should have the opportunity to hear. As a regional minister, I visit lots of churches. And sadly, one of the things that I have noticed more often than I care to enjoy is that churches are really good at putting on activities for people. Parent and toddler groups, lunch clubs, youth clubs, and so on. They're really good at putting on events for Christians. So we have Sunday services, house groups, discipleship courses, and so on. But my observation is that churches and Christians seem to have lost our edge in the bit in between. The bit between making contact with people and serving them and them becoming Christians, the bit where we ask them and invite them and encourage them and challenge them and urge them to hear about Jesus and to take him as their Lord for themselves. I wonder if we were as enthusiastic in telling people about what God has done for us as David was in this psalm, whether churches would be in the place we are in this country at the moment. He couldn't keep quiet about it. He makes his very public declaration of it because he was acutely aware of all that God had done for him. So when you write your list, if you write your list, of all that God has blessed you with, don't just include material things or physical things, but remind yourself too of the amazing spiritual things that God has done for you. Jesus' death on the cross that saves us from eternal separation from God. His eternal faithfulness for us. Don't allow the fact that we'll never actually be able 
to count everything he's ever done for us from stopping you from trying. And pray that God's Spirit will remind you afresh of all of these things and renew your desire to tell other people what God has done for you. Let it overflow into worship and praise. I have a feeling that if you do write such a list, you might find it an awful lot easier to talk to people about what God has done for you because it's fresh in your mind. About a week after my heart operation, I was sat in bed in the hospital and started to feel really strange. The next thing I remember is waking up flat on the bed, surrounded by doctors and nurses, who were all looking really concerned. I'd had a cardiac arrest, and one of the doctors had got the defibrillator and brought me back to life. As you can imagine, I was incredibly grateful to this doctor. He was really humble about it. I was just doing my job. Really? From that time on, every time I saw him around the ward... I kind of nodded at him and he nodded at me and we knew what we meant. But I also really wanted to tell everybody around me, this is the doctor who saved my life. A little while after I'd got home, I was reflecting on it and I suddenly became aware that I've been saved even more spectacularly than just by a doctor with a defibrillator because Jesus died for me. And he has saved me for eternity. And too often, I have kept quiet about that. The enormity and significance of it just has somehow faded. So I've resolved, with God's Spirit's help, not to keep so quiet anymore. And I want to offer you the invitation to make that resolution too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you have done so much for us. And your death on the cross that has enabled us to be in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father, that our sin is forgiven, that our past is no longer what binds us and defines us. You've given us a hope and a future. Lord Jesus, we thank you, we worship you. We bless you and we honor you for that. And we thank you that you are not a dead savior, but a risen Lord. That you've given us your spirit within us to help us, to equip us, to inspire us, to transform us. And to give us the words to say, to share that faith that we have in you. Lord Jesus, we pray, help us to be responsive again to who you are and all that you have done. Help us to reflect and to worship you, but also not to keep quiet. Give us the opportunities, give us the words to say where we might sensitively and sensibly talk to others about who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, if there are people on our hearts and minds right now that we long to share our faith with, we lift them to you and pray that your spirit will be at work in their lives, and they'll be receptive to him, preparing them for what you want to say to them through us. Amen.